Welcome to episode number 31 of Nurses Living the Good Life. My name's Ann Conkley. I'm a certified nurse midwife and a certified life and business coach, and I'm so glad that you're here. We're going to talk today about quiet quitting because I think it's been in the news. It's been through Harvard Business Review. We've seen it in The Guardian and The Atlantic and New York Times is reporting on it. And I've done a couple of TikTok videos, which have gotten a lot of traction. Uh, And so I just want to go over it and really discuss what it means for the profession of nursing, how it applies to us, and maybe how it applies to you too in this moment. Um, But first, I will be honest, I'm preparing for dental surgery later this afternoon, and I am, I'm a little bit worried, I'm going to tell you something. And I'll be very honest, this is a journey that I am choosing to go on to have uh, four teeth removed, and to um, explore all of the possible options that I can for healing my thyroid gland and my autoimmune conditions. So that includes to me seeing um, a holistic dentist. I had a mercury filling, one of the last mercury fillings that was in my mouth. I had it removed uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, which went well, and uh, replaced with a, I think it's a ceramic filling. And this holistic dentist that I see also recommended that my uh, four old root canals, and now I crowns on them that they come out as well. They do some sort of a 3D scan. And so he looked at all of them. One looks like it's abscess, he said, in the bone. And he said, there's no nerve there, so you can't feel it, but it's there. So that could be contributing to some of my continued autoimmune flares. We'll see. Um, and uh, and then the, the other three teeth, two of those are 50% of the way, you know, like look like they're maybe heading toward an abscess. And then the, the fourth one is stable for right now, but there's no good way to monitor and watch it to see um, when it will change. And so I've decided that all four are coming out and this is just how it's going to be. And I have to admit, I have a terrible time with the dentist. I don't know about anybody else who's listening, but I grew up with a dentist who used to scare the living daylights out of me. And I used to always have cavities and I would go in there and I would always feel like, you know, the lidocaine didn't work or the xylocaine or whatever combination of, you know, anesthetic they used. And I would hate it and it would hurt and I would have pain. And I'll never forget him telling me to huff like a puppy. Ha, ha. And I, I, even the thought of just that whole situation brings, you know, back the willies for me. So, so I am not looking forward to going to sitting in a, uh, in a, the chair of a dental surgeon. However, I also know that if I let my primitive brain, my brain that controls fear and makes me always want to sit on the couch, have Netflix and a glass of wine, if I let that brain control, you know, what I did in the world, I would probably not be sitting here today with a podcast and a life coaching business practice, right? So I've learned, you know, I've learned in the past and, um, and I've made some decisions for myself and whether or not this will, you know, continue to help me um, heal my thyroid gland, just like all of the other interventions that I've done, including uh, taking gluten out of my diet and dairy out of my diet and soy out of my diet and, and um, you know, taking a, a daily supplements, including NAC and um, uh, glutathione and, you know, all of the, um, all of these interventions that I've done over the past year, this is really one of the last pieces that I've been looking to do. So, so I'm not going to uh, lie. I've got a little bit of uh, fear uh, in me and I'm, 
and I'm allowing it to be there. It's one thing I talk a lot about with my clients, which is, you know, what we, what do we do with emotions when we when they come? Do we allow them to be there? Do we uh, shame ourselves for them being there? Do we resist them and tell ourselves we should feel differently? Uh, do we uh, avoid them? Do we just completely not give them any attention and just allow them to fester and to brew? Um, you know, or um, you know, do we react to them? Do we, you know, allow those emotions to fuel, you know, the way in which we maybe take it out on the people who we love, like our kids or our partners or, you know, the people who are important to us in our lives. And so I notice that I'm having that fear and that it's okay. I'm not going to push it away. I'm allowing it to be there. And, and I know that, um, that this is part of the journey and the payoff is totally worth it. So, right. It's kind of like what we do in business and kind of like what you might be doing every day when you show up for clinic or for your business, which is that, you know, we tell ourselves, is it hard? Yes, absolutely. Is it worth it? A hundred percent. Right. So, uh, so that's what I'm, uh, uh, going through today. And, uh, and you know, it is what it is, right? Uh, by the time hopefully this podcast comes out and you're listening, I will be well on the road to recovery without uh, any bruising and or soreness and pain and, uh, and, and starting the healing journey uh, so that I can go later down the road in about six months and have an implant put in and, and be done with this phase of, uh, of tooth bullshit. <laughs> so, so, uh, but let's get to quiet quitting and let's talk a little bit about this. Cause I, I know that you probably want more information on quiet quitting than you do on my teeth and my mouth situation. So, so let's talk about quiet quitting first. And I, I just want to, you know, note that quiet quitting is kind of an interesting concept and, I don't know that it actually applies to nurses. And, you know, I put up a video on, on TikTok that um, had a lot of views, a lot of likes, a lot of comments. And, you know, it's funny when, uh, when you begin to put your voice out there and you begin to say things, you know, there are always going to be people who love them. There are always going to be people who hate them. There's always going to be people in the middle who don't give a fuck. And that's all right, right? Our job, right, as the people who say what needs to be said or who speak from a place of truth and integrity and who commit to um, to sharing a perspective, our job is not to let any of those comments, the good ones, the bad ones, uh, really, you know, make any, make them mean anything about us, right? And it's the same thing for you when you walk into clinic and, you know, your office manager brings over your Prescini reports or, you know, whether it's your you know, monthly office meeting and you notice that, you know, there's a comment that came up that's being reviewed because it says something about one of the office visits that you have, right? If I ruled my life based on every negative office review that I had over my career, I'd be up in my bed eating, you know, candy again, like with a bottle of wine, not just a glass of wine. And, uh, you know, with the covers over my head, never wanting to get out. And which is normal, right? It's normal, you know, to have that reaction. And when we can get to a point and say, you know what, I show up the best that I can. I show up from a place of integrity. I say what I think is true. And I say it in a way uh, with intention, in a way that doesn't cause harm and as best I can. And, uh, and I think when we commit to that and feel confident about it, then you know, we can sit very comfortably when uh, any of the comments roll in, whether they're good, bad, or otherwise. So, but anyways, there are quite a few comments on this uh, video on TikTok. 
And I, I just wanted to, to mention first that I don't really think that we can quiet quit. I don't know that as advanced practice nurses and nurses that, that we can go into a job and just, you know, not do our job or, or not show up for the bare minimum. I think we can. And I also, but I also want to mention that like the, the, you know, like you can't just not give meds, like nobody goes into, or you can't just not, you know, close your charts. I mean, there is a repercussion that comes from that. If you have a disciplinary action that's taken against you because, you know, you lose your credentialing because you've not closed your charts. That used to be a um, a threat that our, my old institution uh, used to hang over our heads, right? Close your charts within, I don't know, it was something like, you know, the recommendation was close them within 72 hours at most. But then, you know, once you got to the month or the three month mark, uh, they would, uh, you know, hit you with a few extra emails like, you know, that your credentialing was uh, up for uh, to go before the credentialing committee to be questioned and, and maybe revoked uh, for not having closed charts. And I think, you know, the majority of us don't do that. The majority of us, maybe we take a little bit longer, or maybe we got a couple charts here and there that, you know, we just don't get closed right away. Uh, but I think for the majority of us, we close them, right? Because that's our job, right? I mean, if I'm going to submit a bill to CMS or to a, uh, you know, an employer-sponsored insurance plan, you know, I've got to have a note there to document and back up, you know, why I'm submitting a bill to them and a claim. So I think most of us, you know, not only every day, all day do the bare minimum, I think we do what's required of us. I think what's interesting is that many of us have always come to work with a sense of doing the extra thing. And and, and that's for a variety of reasons. Maybe that's because we wanted to be, you know, go above and beyond. And we really wanted to, we felt very called and very passionate about helping our patients and doing the best that we could for them. Maybe for some of us, like me, maybe it was like a people-pleasing thing where, you know, I want people to like me and I want to show up and be the midwife that, you know, gets the good scores. And, you know, I, I want to have not only have my patients, you know, have a great experience, but I really want them to like me, right? I mean, you know, if you're a people-pleaser, this, this is a very common thought. And, uh, and, and it may not feel harmful to you or, or problematic to you. And we know sometimes that the act of people-pleasing, you know, done over and over again, and, and especially if you take that and you apply it into a non-professional sense, you know, you, be, you, you can become the person who always looks outside of herself for, um, uh, you know, to be validated or, you know, to be liked. And, and that, I think, overall becomes a problem, right? Because then you say, well, you know, if my being liked uh, depends on all of these external sources and the minute those external sources uh, turn to negative, right, it, it's a shit day for me, right? If, if uh, if I've relied on that as a way in which I boost myself up and all of a sudden that input is gone or those reviews turn to negative ones, right? It feels really hard. A lot of suffering with the, with that, right? So, but I mean, the other portion of this is, as we've talked about on this podcast before, many of us are socialized, whether it's by the people who raised us or by society or maybe by our culture or religion, we are uh, very often as women socialized uh, to you know, consider the needs of others above our own. We're also in a paid profession, which asks us every day, you know, to uh, consider other people's needs, right? And sometimes 15 times a day, sometimes 30 times a day, you know, to, you know, we get paid to consider other people's needs. So, you know, when we come in and, and someone starts talking about quiet quitting, I think for nurses that that's a, that's not necessarily something that we do, right? I just don't think that, you know, that's that's the way that we do business. I, I, I don't think at least. 
And But what I also know to be true is that some of us come in and maybe like, maybe this will resonate with you, but you know, I, I know where I was a couple of years ago and I remember sitting in bed on call and my pager going off or my Cisco phone ringing and the triage nurse saying, you know, you got another one. And it was 2.30, you know, in the morning. And I was very comfortable in my call bed and I was pissed. I was so burnt out at that point and I was so frustrated, right, because a patient had come in at 2.30 in the morning. Now, look, did I get hired to do triage and to take call overnight? Yeah, absolutely. Did I sign a contract that said I would take call? Yes, I did. Was I receiving paychecks Q2 weeks because I was taking call and doing that work? Yes, I was, right? But was I in my own head and in a total place of burnout and in some really heavy shit thinking about how, you know, how terrible it was for me because I had to get up. Yeah. Okay. Look, I mean, I will admit I was in a, a very victim-y mode at that point and, and so thick in my own, you know, emotions and uh, that it was hard for me to really feel like, um, you know, excited about going to work again. And so some of us do get to that point, and I think that's you know maybe a flavor of quiet quitting. But what's interesting is that I think that when we start to talk about quiet quitting from the standpoint of the nurse, all of us, right, like, like even in that instance, it's 2.30 in the morning, the triage nurse calls, and she says, hey, can you come down and see this patient? I say, yep, sounds good. And then I get off the phone, and then I have my moment, I right? I literally want to chuck my pager at the wall. I want it to break into a thousand pieces. If you've ever seen office space, I mean, if I had a bat, I would have put the pager on the ground. I would have taken a bat to it and I would have annihilated it because I was so angry about having to go and get out of bed and go go down and see this patient. And it, and that wasn't a very often occurrence for me. I wasn't like a, you know, I'm not a, a very angry person uh, in general. I mean, I have my moments for sure, like any human does. Uh, and But I don't carry around anger and resentment and harbor it because it's just not my style. And so I knew based on that reaction that I was having, that I wanted to literally chuck my pager at the wall. I knew something was, was not right with me. And, um, but, but from the standpoint of the nurse, I, I think it's very interesting for us because when we go into work, you know, we still commit, we may have our moments, we may have our, you know, moments and we may stop every day to get a Dunkin' Donuts coffee or Starbucks and to really, we may put our tunes on and try to get our mindset right so that we walk on to shift and, or we walk into clinic and, you know, we are as prepped as we can be despite all the other, you know, circumstances and thoughts going on in our heads and the burnout and, and all the other shit, right? But we still show up, right? We still accept the paycheck. We still show up. We still do the work. And, and then some of us will have these moments where we say, you know, what's going on and, and we get curious and then start to examine, you know, maybe something's a little bit off for me and why, you know, what's really coming up for me, which is what I did. But I think quiet quitting is really interesting because a lot of the stories that have come out and the articles that have been written are really from the standpoint of the employer. And I think what's interesting, we just saw in Minnesota, one of the largest uh, nurse, nurse strikes uh, occur uh, due to you know poor staffing conditions and and poor working conditions for nurses, and I think it's really interesting because quiet quitting from the stance of the employer looks very negative. And they'll say, well, our employees are quiet quitting. They just come in to do the bare minimum, and they don't go above and beyond. And when I think of quiet quitting from the standpoint of a nurse and knowing full well my own experience, not only being 
wildly excited about being a midwife and, and loving to see triage patients. You know, there was a time when I loved that. And then there was a time when I didn't, right? And, and from my standpoint, knowing that despite whether it was a great day or it was a shit day, I still showed up and did the work. Right. And, and I very often did it mostly with a smile on my face and, and managed my mind so that I could show up. And so that, you know, my personal life didn't get in the way of being able to provide care to 20 patients a day in the clinic or to, you know, to catch, go on a a 12 hour shift and catch five babies. Right. Like we don't have that luxury. We really don't. Right. And so I get a little bit annoyed when the employers start to talk about quiet quitting and really place blame on the employee or on the nurse for quite quitting. And I think it really absolves them of taking any responsibility for the conditions that they've created. One of the other TikTok videos that I put up probably a couple of weeks ago at this point was a video of Simon Sinek. And you know, if you're in Nurses Living the Good Life, we talk about, and, and if you do any business coaching with me, we talk about being mission-driven and really getting to why. And Simon Sinek is well known for his talk on getting to why, which has been viewed like a bajillion times on YouTube. And if you haven't seen it, it's fascinating. If you like business or you have this idea and, and you really want to take it out into the world, I mean, you could build an entire business just from watching Simon Sinek talk about getting to why. His main premise, though, is that people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it, right? Which is why we talk a lot about nurses living the good life. We talk about being very mission-driven. We're here to change the world for nurses by nurses because, right, like people don't buy coaching. They buy um, they buy the opportunity to have a better life. They buy the opportunity to you know, live the best version of their lives. And so when Simon Sinek started talking about, you know, why he, and in addition to to this work that he's done on really getting to why and being very mission driven, he put up this video that where he was talking, he was doing some sort of an interview and he was talking about healthcare leadership in particular, which I thought was so appropriate for, for this moment. And he said, you know, he said, when I go into uh, healthcare operations and hospitals, he said, and I'm paraphrasing here grossly. So, you know, just, just note that it will sound much different, but he says something to the likes of, you know, when I go in and talk to healthcare leaders, you know, they tell me that the patients are their, you know, their goal and, and their goals are to, you know, m- you know, provide the best care to the patients. And he said, and that's absolutely not the truth. The goal of the frontline providers, the nurses, the physicians, the t- respiratory therapists, the OTs, the PTs, the RDs, the, uh, everybody who touches the patient, who actually is face-to-face with, with the patient, the environmental tech people, uh, the housekeepers, the dining room people, the cafeteria workers, those people, their job is to be present and to improve the care and the experience of the patient. Yes, absolutely. And Simon Sinek, Simon Sinek goes on to say, but when I talk to healthcare leaders, they get confused and they say, well, my job is to make sure that the patients, you know, get their experience and get what they need. And he says, no, it's not. He says, your, your job is to, and I think from, from the standpoint of, um, you know, most leadership, and this would probably be except for the CEO, right? The CEO, whoever the CEO is of, of a company is responsible for both of these things. But for everyone else who's not running the helm of an organization, everyone else who's in an executive position or a leadership position is really responsible, uh, not, not necessarily directly to the patients, but directly to the people that they manage, 
directly to the people who run those services, directly to the caregivers who provide the care. And so he goes on to say, you know, when it, it's the biggest fallacy that I, I ever hear when, when executives start to talk about how, you know, they are focused more on the patients than they are on their people. And he said, and that's where you see leadership really break down and where you see that you don't have investment in your staff. As he said, because what happens is that if you switch as an executive, as a leader, as you switch your focus and you say, well, we invest in our people, knowing that if we invest in our caregivers and every person who, who touches the patient along the patient journey, that if we invest in those people, then they in turn will not only invest in themselves, but they will go out and invest in the patients who come in. And that is our job. Our job is not to control all of the, you know, uh, the, the patient end user experience issues. Our goal is to provide our staff to support them, to give them exactly what they need to do the job, to listen to them when they decide, no, this doesn't work and we recommend a different solution. It is to take what they give us from being on the front line to examine it, to use it and to problem solve, to, to bring, you know, operational, uh, uh, you know, methodology to, to solve, to bring, um, you know, different design thinking in order to solve problems, right? That's the goal of management. That's the goal of leadership. And so I think when these, these conversations come out about quiet quitting and it comes out from the standpoint of the employer, Right. And again, like I've talked about, uh, we know that nurses sometimes come in and maybe they have thoughts, right? Some good days, some bad days. And, and, but they still do the work, right? They come in and do the work, right? That they were hired to do. They receive the paycheck. They fulfill their end of the bargain, right? On the contract. You hire me for 40 hours a week. I come in. Sometimes I'm a human and come in with good days, sometimes with bad days. I commit to managing my mind. I put my personal stuff to the side. I do the work I was contracted to do and hired to do, right? And can we say the same of our executives? Well, I don't know, actually. And I think it's a fantastic question for every executive who is out there. If our frontline people commit to doing their work, then what do you commit to doing, right, as an executive? Are you going to blame them for quiet quitting? Are you going to blame them for being frontline and working through a pandemic? And from, are you going to blame them because maybe at one point they started to wear a mask and then you told them to take the mask off because your hospital doesn't do that? Are you going to blame them for um, you know, not supporting them and not supplying them, doing everything in your possible power in order to get them the supplies that they needed to be safe? Are you going, right? Like if we have people who for two years have gone through moments where they didn't have the right supplies to do their job, they didn't have as much information as they needed to do their job, they didn't have the staffing around in order to do their job well, and to meet the standards that have been set by widely by professional organizations in terms of staffing, right? Like, who are we to blame, right? Like, it, it, and it's the same conversation that goes on when you start to look at travel nurses and the conversation around, you know, staffing and travel nurses and money and why the conversation flips to putting, placing blame on the frontline worker, whether it's the nurse or otherwise. It's the same thing with the travel companies that with pay. We, right, the narrative will be, well, we'll just blame the nurse who quits her, his, her, their job and goes to a nearby hospital or goes and signs onto a travel contract. We'll place blame on the nurse for trying to, you know, do something good for herself 
instead of actually taking ownership of the fact that our people are quitting in droves, that they don't have the uh, staff to do their job, they're not getting paid adequately, they are uh, consistently short-staffed, they're getting called on their days off to come in, they are continually asked to do more, they are continually uh, uh, not then subsequently offered more for doing more, which really pisses me off. And uh, like, and so, so who, you know, so where does the blame go? And I think that's my biggest beef with quiet quitting, that if you're going to place the blame on the employee, then like shame on you, because you haven't done your due diligence in, in creating an environment that was safe, that was stable, that was adequately prepared, and that had, uh, that you were hired to do. And so when you see, right, quiet quitting, so to speak, is the end result, and for those of you who know, you know, in my practice, we use the model, where, which is a, um, a technique uh, that uh, originates from cognitive behavioral technique, right? And so if in the model, right, we've got, you know, thoughts create feelings, feelings create actions, actions create the results that we experience. And when we look at it and we say, well, we put, we put quiet quitting in the result line and we say, what were the actions that led to it? Well, certainly, are there actions that you know, were taken by the individual you know, frontline worker? Yes, absolutely. And are those the only actions taken? No. We can look at the actions from the employer. What created an environment where you have employees who want to come in and do their bare minimum? What, what have you done to support that? What have you done to create that result? Right. And and if you came from a place of love for your employees, would you ever create an environment where they quite quit? Would you? Right. If you were committed to your employees, if you were committed to providing them with uh, safe spaces to do their work, with the resources that they needed to, to do it well and with the technology that not that didn't hold them back and didn't make more work for them, but helped them to actually get out there and do a better fucking job. Like if you aren't doing that work, then, you know, fuck you if you want to talk about quiet quitting. Like that's, that's to me. And I know for some of you, you, you relate to this and you're like, and, and I think it's really important to see that this is when the blame is placed on the worker as it very often is. And you have to also remember too, we're looking, if we, if we just take a step back and objectively look at systems of power and we look at, you know, who's marginalized or who's oppressed within systems of power and regardless of who that is. And very often, as you know, if we look at it from a feminist approach, uh, we, we very often see that we have cis white gender, uh, um, cisgendered white men at the top, uh, and everybody else below. Right. And so when we have one group in power and thus we then have people who are without power, Right, and the group in power uh, oppresses, marginalizes, and others the you know group that's not uh, in power. We then see that they will always put the blame on that marginalized, oppressed, or othered group, and very often that group ends up you know um, having the share of of violence inflicted on them because the structure of oppression is that you know in order to maintain power you do whatever you do to to maintain power, whether that means you know um, uh, you know and however that works out, and so. I want you to be able to look at this moment in our profession, and I want you to be able to have a lens of it and say, wow, quiet quitting is really interesting. 
And, and, and we always look at it from the two perspectives of what is out in our control, right? What's in my control as the healthcare providers, the frontline you know, worker, the person who goes into work, what's in my control and what do I do and how do I show up? Am I the you know, midwife who's throwing the pager against the wall or finding a, a bat so she can you know, annihilate the pager? And am I managing my mind well? Am I, you know, providing myself with all the things that I can do, therapy, coaching, um, you know, adequate rest and time away from my work? Like, am I doing my part? Yes, of course. We all do that because otherwise, if you didn't, you'd be fired. I mean, let's be honest, right? Like, if you didn't come to work and do your job, like, you would eventually be fired. So if you still have a job, you're doing your job. I just want to note that. And, um, And then we look at it from the standpoint of, okay, how about external to me? What are the systems around me that are contributing to it? Well, what's the system that's contributed to quiet quitting? I would argue it's been a, you know, you have a lack of, of engagement and a lack of interest and a lack of support that's been created by leadership teams. And I don't care what anybody says, but like pizza parties don't fucking cut it. You know, like an umbrella for nurses week, it doesn't fucking cut it. Right? Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> You know, I'm not in it for like, uh, you know, a delivery of uh, roses or cookies to my unit. Like I want what I need to do my job. I want better systems. I want better technology. I want technology and healthcare to be an electronic medical records to be on par with an Apple iPhone. Like, why is that so hard to ask? Right? You're like, wait a minute. Elon Musk designed a car that can fucking drive and park itself. Like, how is it that I still have to enter the LMP manually? Like, why? Why? Right? So, like, so right? So we can be the, the people who say, all right, I'm going to manage my mind. I just got to enter the LMP manually every goddamn time. Whatever. I'm going to do that. And though, if we are, um, if we can, I encourage you to step back and say, all right, I'll take ownership for my part, but what is my environment? You know, what's, what are the, the ways in which the system that I exist in, the healthcare system, the leadership team, what are they doing? And are they doing their part? And that's where I think quiet quitting comes from. It's like, well, the leaders are like, well, you know, these people aren't, aren't pulling their weight. Oh, really? Who's not pulling his or her or their weight here? Let's have that kind of a conversation. What have you done, you know, to uh, support your team? What have you done that is meaningful beyond a pizza party? Hmm? Why don't we start there? And then we'll have a conversation about exactly why people have decided to leave in droves from, you know, and we have a term that's been coined as the great resignation, right? Uh, so I think, you know, I get a little bit fired up about this, and I know some of you do too, and I think we have every right to expect that our employers create environments that are safe for us, that give us the resources to do our jobs, not only give us the resources to do our jobs, but to fucking knock it out of the park. And I think any leader in any organization that is sitting there saying, well, that's not my job, you ought not be in a leadership position. And I think you should hand in your resignation or you should look elsewhere and, and or put yourself back on the front line and feel again what it feels like not to have the safety, not to have the supplies to do your job. And on top of it to once a year, get a fucking cookie cake or a uh, pizza party, right? But just go ahead and experience that. See how that feels. And I, you know, that's where I think we, that's where I think the conversation isn't going with quiet quitting. We're not having the accountability from the standpoint of the, you know, employer. And again, 
if we look at it from a standpoint of, you know, systems of oppression, we can see clearly like, oh, interesting. Yes, of course. We have people who are in power and leadership positions and, uh, you know, and how do they stay in power? Well, sometimes they oppress and, and sometimes they don't always, you know, contribute to uh, cultures that support growth and, you know, and, and they don't meet the needs of the employees, like the basic needs of employees. And so, you know, I think quite quitting, if you look at it from that perspective, it, you know, I, I just, it becomes easier to stomach it and say, all right, you know what, this isn't so much about me. Now, employers would have me think it's about me. And, uh, and you know, look, if you're like, look, I come into work like a total, you know, beast sometimes, and you do that more often than not, then you've got your work to do. And I'm not about to sit here and blow smoke up your ass and tell you, you know, oh, it's all your employer. No, 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 no. This is your work to do. Uh, and we and you as leader of yourself, can I expect anybody else to help you get out of your shit thinking and to, you know, when you want to put a bat to your pager and destroy it, that, you know, that uh, like your healthcare, uh, your employer is, it cannot manage your mind. You are responsible for doing that. Uh, and that is your responsibility to be the CEO of your life, to be a leader of yourself first and always, and then also to take that in and to look at, at the lens of where you work and say, oh, interesting. What am I responsible for? What's in my control? What can I do better about you know, this situation and about quiet quitting? And then you know, what am I also willing to see uh, and point out and speak vocally about to my employer about you know, quiet quitting and their contributions, in my opinion? Right. Uh, what am I? What am I able to, you know, see from from a lens if we took kind of a thirty thousand foot view? And I'd encourage you to do it because I think, you know, again, we don't change things by just, um, you know, annihilating pagers. We really don't, right? Like it feels good in the moment. It's a great dopamine hit to, you know, to take a Cisco phone and to, you know, uh, take a bat and and you know like beat the shit out of it. And just a side note, I, I don't know if you guys go to Costco, but I, <laughs> I actually, we don't really go to Costco anymore in person. Um, and I have switched over to Amazon subscribe and save for the most, for the majority of my bulk items. But man, I used to go to Costco and I would hear a Cisco phone ring and it was like a trauma response because I used to carry a Cisco phone on L and D and I would hear it ring and I'd be like, Oh God, you know, like I'd like physically take my hand to my uh, to like where my belt would be, you know, where my Cisco phone would be on my waist. And I, you know, it'd send me into this like, um, so, you know, but like if you're on the verge of, you know, taking your Cisco phone and driving over it or, <laughs> right, it sure feels good in the moment. Absolutely fantastic dopamine hit. And does it serve your long-term goals? Does it serve kind of the, the long-term, you know, um, uh, like uh, solution? No, it doesn't. It doesn't, right? And and you and I both know that. We can laugh about it. We know that. It feels good in the moment. It doesn't really help us long term, right? It just means we gotta probably put in a, you know, either throw it in the garbage and hope nobody notices like the next oncoming midwife for a shift, or, you know, then I don't know, go and, you know, tell our manager and be like, sorry, I had a moment and I, you know, totally annihilated the Cisco phone. Like, you know, and then there's there there's gonna be questions. Then you gotta fill out probably a, I don't know, missing equipment report or some shit. You know, they're gonna have nine hundred things for you to do. So does it feel good in the moment? Yeah. In the moment, yes, of course it does. 
does it get us to a place where, you know, we're working for people and working in systems that value us, that respect us, and that, and, and that where we're actually working in places where we want to be? No, it doesn't. It doesn't, it doesn't do any of that. So, so, um, so don't take it out on the Cisco phone, despite the fact that you want to, I get it normal. Nothing's gone wrong here. And let's think bigger picture. And remember that when people start to talk about quiet quitting, remember that that's probably really not what you're doing. Uh, right. Because the reality was if you quiet quit, I mean, you did the bare minimum, you know, you might not have a job, right? Like, cause the insurance companies would deny the claims and, you know, you wouldn't get reimbursed. And, you know, so I don't think that that's really very possible for nurses. And at the same time, I also think, you know, you and I are both responsible for managing our minds when we go into work and for making sure that we have, you know, the tools in order to handle what's going on in our personal lives and what's going on in our professional lives. You and I also get to make choices about where we spend our time, where we invest it, and in which systems and in which systems we say, nope, juice is not worth the squeeze there. And we exit, right? And go on to a travel company or become, you know, locums NP. And, um, and I want you to just remember that, that it is not your job to, you know, despite what people may tell you, you know, we as, as you as one individual, you know, it's hard, it's going to be hard for you to change an entire system. And so um, if you are not in a, a position of power to do so, and so your goal is to always, first and foremost, manage your mind to make sure that you're all right. Uh, and, and then too, if you can step back and say, where is the system failed? Uh, us as employees and and am I willing or interested in being part of that solution and how could then I approach it with my employer my boss or my manager Um, and and not to assign blame to yourself or shame to yourself because you know some of these articles would I think have us think like we've been terrible and it's it's our it's our fault and it's not it's not Okay, you and I both know where we hold responsibility, and uh, and and also uh, just as much as we hold ourselves accountable, we also get to hold our organizations and institutions accountable. So, so, um, so, all right. And you know what? Remember, if you're like, I gotta get out of here, I gotta get out of this this hellhole of an organization or hospital, or I gotta start my own practice, I need a side hustle, I gotta get something going now so that in a year I can exit. Come and join us in. Um, in Nurses Living the Good Life. Uh, at the time this airs, we may be just in the middle of uh, Exit Strategy Week 2022, which is a, a free week of coaching and support for you guys who are, uh, for all of you, rather not guys, but all of you who are looking to uh, create an exit plan for yourselves and you know see what, you know, start to build up that next um, three to five years of your career and and take all the experience that you have and to do it, you know, repackage it, repurpose it, and to create something for you that's meaningful and that allows you to leave a mark on the world, to do good work, and also to do well for yourselves. That's what uh, that's what it means, in my opinion, to be a nurse who lives the, the good life. Do good and do well. So uh, take care. If you have questions, don't hesitate to reach out and um, come join us in Exit Strategy Week. Um, otherwise, information on the website on Nurses Living the Good Life and uh, the mastermind that's coming up in January. I will see you next time. Take care.